Welcome to the RA Exchange. My name is Naishka Chandran. I am a senior staff writer. I am with my very lovely colleague and fellow staff writer, Kiana Mickles. Hey. We are recording live out of New York at one of our favorite clubs nowadays. And our guest today is a veteran artist and a native New Yorker who really represents the heart and soul of nightlife here in the city. He has been DJing and producing since the late 90s and can really play any style at any kind of venue. It's none other than Ellie Escobar. Welcome to The Exchange, Ellie. Thank you, thanks for having me. We're gonna be diving into the many facets of your decade-spanning career, talking about how you got started in this game and how you keep on going. Okay. Yeah, so let's get into it. Um, how was your weekend? I saw that Tiki Disco was happening. How was that? It was good. I'm trying to remember what else I did. Actually, no, I didn't. I, that was, it was a rare weekend where I only worked that, that day, Sunday. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was incredible. Really lucky to have that party. For those who don't know, Tiki Disco is a party you co-founded back in 2014. 2010. I, I would give all credit to um, Andy Pry. It's, it's me, Lloyd, and Andy Pry. Andy Pry was the guy who booked me and Lloyd uh, to play um, in the backyard of uh, Roberta's. Like mm -hmm. the first year they were open. Um, we didn't know him. He booked us like as his guest. He he came up with the idea to do like a, you know, a little outdoor thing. Booked us, and then after the first one, me and Lloyd looked at each other. We we're like, we got to do this every Sunday. Right. And we we kind of like, he actually booked other people to do like the one after, and maybe the one after that. And then we kind of like, moved in on on those other people and pushed them out of the way, <laughs> and uh, and kind of and then the, it's just been the three of us ever since. So that was 2010, and we moved. You know, as the party's gotten bigger, we've had to move it, you know, to different venues. Tiki Disco is remarkable because you guys have attracted an extremely loyal crowd over the years. And I would say your ability to fill a room at any one of your parties is probably one of your most talked about and respected skills. Kiana and I witnessed this in action, even on a weekday. We were at Lebane recently for your weekly Wednesday night there with DJ MoMA. Mm -hmm. which is called Dance, Dance, Dance. It was really incredible to see a club that packed with such a wild crowd before midnight on a school night. Um, but, you know, this seems to be a normal thing for you. Uh, Can you tell us what your secret is to getting such a consistent and crazy crowd on a weekday? Um, uh, that, that, uh, that took a lot of time. Mm -hmm. That was not instant. Um, MoMA and I are both, you know, approximately the same age, and, and um, you know, this is not, this was not an unusual thing. Weeknights used to be the better, I remember being in high school and telling my friends, like, I don't go out on the weekends. You know, like, you used to be like, you didn't even want to go out on a Friday or Saturday, so we were sort of like, interested in trying to make sure that that wasn't something that, that went away, to keep something going on. Um, uh, just because, I don't know, I don't really know why anymore at this point, but I feel like the bridge and tunnel crowd idea is, is something of the past. Um, it's too expensive to live in the city now, you know, it's like going out on the weekend actually makes sense now again, you know, it's, but we just, yeah, we wanted to make sure we had something special and we also wanted to have something with its own musical identity. 
um, which was like Afrobeats and dance hall, um, you know, a little bit of house, but it's not that much house music because um, we, you know, we play that at other parties. Um, so uh, we started that and it was dead for a while. It, it took a while. I, I would say like maybe even two years. LeBain was just patient with us. They let us build it. And um, now it's like every week is crazy, but it's been like that for a while. Um, but yeah, that was just something, I would say a tradition that we felt we were really interested in keeping alive, like a, a Sunday night or a Wednesday or you know, a Monday. I guess yeah. I'm curious to know what kind of weekday parties you were mm -hmm. going to um, when you were around that age. Yeah, well, when I was in high school, one of the most popular parties was Soul Kitchen. That was on Sundays. Um, and then later on, I mean, like Sundays have always been like a, a you know, there was Body and Soul. Um, a lot of the uh, parties like Shelter and whatever would start late on Saturday and then keep going into Sunday. Um, aside from that, like, when I was younger, it was a little bit less about the DJ and the name of the party or whatever. It was just like, you went to this club on Tuesdays, you went to this club on Wednesdays, you went to this club, you know, Thursdays. And it was, it was more about just sort of like what the buzz was, like Thursday night at, you know, fill in the blank is the good night. And um, I'm not really sure why in the 90s um, and even the 2000s week night nightlife was so popular. Um, I think that there were it was a little bit more affordable to live in New York. A lot of people who worked in the club industry would have, you know, they would want to have a night when they could go out and be around the people they worked with. And um, I don't know, it just seemed like the best time to do that would be a weeknight, right? Not a weekend. Cool. And something I noticed during your Le Bon set was mm -hmm. that I, I know that your party centers mainly around um, Afrobeats and, you know, this other side of your collection. But I did notice that you kind of like eased into the night with mm -hmm. House. Yeah, yeah. So um, I'm curious to know, um, how do you approach reading the crowd on a night like that? because the crowd was going crazy, <laughs> as we mentioned. Yeah. Um, that party is really special. I could go in, like, if I'm playing from the beginning of the night, we kind of, like, we, me and MoMA, like, change it up. Sometimes he'll play in the beginning, and then I'll come in, and we'll go back and forth, whatever. It could be, it could be like that, or it could be I do 10 to 1, and then he does 1 to 4, or we might have a guest. Um, I sometimes will come in at 10 and, like, play like, you know, an hour of Mary J. Blige or something, <laughs> if I'm in the mood. And, or I'll play like a like slower dance hall set, or I'll play house, or I'll play, um, I don't know, R&B, whatever. And I think one of the things that comes with having a party that's gone for so long is there's a trust that the crowd has. It doesn't always work out. Sometimes I'm like, all right, this is not working, and I figure out how to get out of it. Um, I'm always really sensitive to that. I've never been the type of DJ who, if I'm playing and people aren't feeling it, I'm not gonna be like, sorry guys, you know, you just don't get me. You know, like, you don't understand. I'm trying to take you on a journey and you just don't get it. That's not me. I'm like, I want people to, to respond. Otherwise, why am I even here? Like, I could just do this in my bedroom. Like, I need that connection with human beings. So, you know, I, I kind of watched, I remember when you guys were there, it was like, People were cool with the house music, but it wasn't like crazy, right? And 
And I felt like, okay, it's getting, this is something that's okay for two hours. Like it's, it's, it's a, I don't want to be, I don't want it to be crazy from 10 till four or five. So I'm cool with it being like simmering. And then I kind of knew, I could see the people come in. We have a lot of regulars, so I know faces. I could feel that people were kind of like re ready to go somewhere else. And um, I just kind of figured out what I thought they would want, and I was right. You know, I don't know. It's, 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 it was a, it's a weekly party. It's not, like, it's not like I'm like so gifted at this. It's just like I, every Wednesday I'm there. So I know what our crowd wants, you know, and, um, and it is kind of like, um, kind of centered around Afrobeats and, um, you know, that, that's how it's always been since we started. That was kind of one of the main things we wanted to do was have a, an outlet to play that kind of music, you know, right. so. Um, yeah, I actually wanted to talk about the weekly aspect of that party because I actually don't many, know many local DJs that have a weekly club residency. I think the monthly club residency is far more common. So what kind of preparation, if any, <laughs> does that um, entail? Because you, know, you do have this relationship with you know, regulars and you know, faces that you see every week. Um, but I imagine there might be more pressure to present new music every week. Yeah, and I love that. Like, I want that. Um, so like for me, um, I spent so much of my career, like from like 97 all the way to like, you know, well into the 2010s maybe even, where I would work like five nights a week. And it was like, you know, at one point there were all these clubs on 27th Street in um, Chelsea. It was like a, you know, it wasn't a great time. I don't look back on it. The clubs were kind of gross but I had to make a living and there wasn't, the, we didn't have back then what we have now. You know, we, had, we didn't have all these amazing clubs like nowadays for people to play good music and you know. So during that time there was um, like six clubs just on 27th Street and I played at five of them every week. You know, like Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Like for real. And, I started to realize, okay, when I'm here on Mondays, I think on Mondays I used to play at this place, Bungalow 8. I was like really into playing um, like synth pop and new wave and alternative music, stuff like that. It only worked there, it didn't work at any of the other places. And then I would be at like um, Marquee on like Wednesdays maybe and I had to play like a lot of, you know, hip hop and, and, uh, and stuff that was that was popular, like on Hot 97. And I knew what would work there. Um, so, but I, I didn't always love the music I was playing, but I really enjoyed kind of like mastering, being good at playing rooms where I didn't actually even relate to like a lot of the people in the room. I don't know why, I just, it was like, it's like part of the craft. And I think somehow I carry it with me now, even though, I really do feel connected to the crowds I play for now because I've been able to make a name, you know, for myself for playing the music I love, which is really amazing. But um, but I, there's something about like learning how to make rooms pop off full of people that you can't even like really re relate to. <laughs> that it's a skill, and like 
um, that's something that I feel like if I wasn't doing those rooms every week, I wouldn't have got I wouldn't have got that. So once the monthly thing, like you mentioned, started to become more popular, I remember thinking to myself, like, I don't want to only do that. I want to have a, a weekly. That's really important to me. Um, and I think that it's possible. I don't feel like I don't feel like if I play somewhere every week that I'm gonna play myself out and like people aren't gonna want to come. You know, it's more about the music. It's not about me. So like me and MoMA, like, you know, we've made names for ourselves and we have these other parties that are really big. But like, I think the reason why people come to that Wednesday for all these years now has nothing to do with us. It's the music. You know, so and we. That's what we worked so hard to make that night um, all about. You know, so that's why it was important to me. I think. Did that make sense? Definitely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Just going back to what you said earlier about reading the crowds. So. In addition to Tiki Disco and this weekly residency at Lebane, you also do a monthly night at House of Yes. You're also a resident at Lady Fag's Battle Hymn Parties. Do you approach each of these nights differently in terms of promotion and selection? And maybe, if you don't mind, also talk about a little about the challenges behind growing each of these nights, because I assume each of these nights have different crowds who are coming, and like you said, I think they're coming for you, but you know. Whether well, I can sort of. I feel like I didn't actually answer one of the things you said, and it can, I can apply it to this: the preparation part of it, mm -hmm. right? Um, that is something that I'm obsessive about, and I'm like constantly doing it, like on my phone, on my laptop, on my records. I've always got like this system in my um, house where I'm like recording every record I buy. Like I, re I go record shopping at least once a week, and then I, I record everything I buy, and a lot of times I edit it, you know, to to make it how I want. If I'm like, I don't like that part, take it out. Or like I extend the intro, whatever. And um, and I do kind of make separate playlists and things for each of these parties. They are, you know, like some songs might cross over, but they're pretty different. You know, I think um, the way I play at Battle Him, I don't think it would work at Tiki. It's just different. It's like it's later in the night, it's dark. Um, and um, the House of Yes party might be a little bit, could align with Battle Him a little bit, but it's a little more like, I could play more disco at, at House of Yes. So yeah, there's, there's opportunities at each of these parties to really like present a different side of myself musically. And it, and it, can, cross, it can cross over, but, but, um, but I, that's kind of one of the things I love the most about having all these different um, nights is how different they are, you know? Um, crowd, music, all of it, you know? What would you say are some challenges to organically growing a club night um, that oh, mo maybe most DJs and artists don't realize? I mean, I really don't know how any of this happened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swear, like, you know, I, I gotta tell you, like, there was a, there, I never thought I would have my own parties. You know, when I was, when I was DJing my ass off in the 2000s and um, playing a lot of, like I said, playing a lot of places I didn't actually like, and um, I had friends, like, you know, Rich Medina and Babito, and they had their nights at APT, which is like one of the only places anyone could go to hear good music. I was so jealous of them. You know, like, I was like, oh, one day I could do that, you know? But I didn't actually think it could happen. But like, I would, a lot of times I would open for Bob, you know, and like, I'd be playing and like, so like, I prepared four hours getting the perfect records and I'd be killing it and someone would walk in and be like, where's Bob? You know? And I'd be like, oh, you know, it's like, just so frustrated, and um, but I, you know, I, I loved them, and I thought it was so great that they were able to do this. 
Uh, and I never thought that I, that I would be able to do that. Um, and, you know, really the way it happened was um, Lloyd, my friend Lloyd, one night, we, there was this little place called Submercer in uh, Soho that was like, you know, a quarter in the size of this room. But it was like a little community of, pe of, of, of us who like, during those dark times, <laughs> it was a little place we could go to hear good music. And I remember Lloyd was like, yo, I got, um, I got a monthly here, let's do it together. Let's just see what happens. And I was like, cool. So, you know, we started and it was like, I don't know, just all of a sudden there was a tiny little group of people that came to see us every time. And I, I, I don't have any idea how it happened. There's no, like I have literally no strategy to offer anybody. Because <laughs> um, I'm terrible at promoting myself, I hate it. Um, I'm pretty shy and I don't really, you know, even if you look at my social media now, like everybody's posting videos of themselves DJing, oh, no way, I'll just post the crowd, you know, like I don't want anyone to see me. And yeah, we just, we just like, I don't know, we just, maybe it was just the right time and the right moment and that allowed for um, something to grow. I feel like sometimes things, you can't plan things and uh, me, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe, maybe I'm selling myself a little short. Maybe it's like all these years of hard work paying off. I don't know. <laughs> but I feel like there's a lot of people who work hard and are really amazing and they don't necessarily get, you know, the chance to, to, um, to have their own parties be successful. So I, I don't know. I really don't know. <laughs> I definitely do think it is hard work. <laughs> Um, but yeah, um, speaking a bit more about um, playing parties that you, where you might not necessarily connect with the crowd. Um, so in addition to your own parties, you guest DJ at a vast array of parties. Um, and you've also spoken about playing commercial parties, um, which I think is something that's probably pretty common for local DJs that's maybe just less talked about. Um, and you're also known to kill it at these parties. Um, what's your approach to moving a more mainstream crowd while also still, you know, injecting some of your personality and style into a set? I mean, I haven't done anything like that in a while now. Mm -hmm. um, I never really like looked at things like that. I mean, I kind of, you know, when I first started, um, playing out, it was, you know, I, I wasn't, like I said, I, I didn't have a name, so I couldn't just like show up to a place and be like, this is what I do, you know. I had to play with everyone who was coming in. I was faceless, I was like, mm -hmm. just, you know, the DJ. Um, the music at the time, though, was pretty great. You know, it wasn't like, oh man, I gotta pay Biggie? It was like, <laughs> it's great, you know, like, <laughs> you know, and it was like still, New York was kind of like running shit, so it was like, you know, you could play like Beat Nuts records at prime time and people would go crazy. So, and then I was, I really loved dance hall. So I always played like two dance hall sets, you know, and then, at the, and then it was like a structure. It was like, you know, you played like two dance hall sets, you played some old school hip hop and then the new stuff. And then at the end of the night, you would play, um, cla we called it classics back then. I think people would just call it disco now. Um, but it would be maybe like on the slower side of things. Like, um, anyway. As the, as the years went on, so I was cool with that. You know, it was, I, my passion, you know, by, the, by like the late 90s was really like um, disco. Mm -hmm. I just, I was like, I was falling out of love with hip hop a little bit. Um, 
and really just obsessed with collecting disco records. <clears throat> and then sort of like house from that, you know, getting better at DJing house and stuff. Um, as the years went on, <laughs> things got worse. Because then all of a sudden it was like really shitty, you know, records being played on the radio that I had to play at clubs. And then eventually EDM kind of came around and I was still, when, I don't know, when did EDM like really hit, like 2006? I was still working, you know, in, in like five clubs, you know, various clubs a night, kind of just trying to make enough money to, um, I still would have rather have been doing that than had like a day job. So even if, if I was playing music I didn't love, I was happy, I was still like, well, I'm a DJ, you know, like could be worse. But I did really start to dislike so much of the music I was playing. I had to figure out ways to make it tolerable. So, and I remember people telling me like, man, you know, like your sets like somehow like sound, like somehow are a little bit more enjoyable than like the average bottle service club DJ sets. So I don't know what I was doing. I think I was like cherry picking good music. Cause you, you know, there was always Prince. There was always Michael Jackson. There was always good music that everyone liked. And I could figure out how to mix that in with you know, some of the stuff I didn't like to make it more tolerable for me so I didn't go home wanting to kill myself, you know? <laughs> um, so I think that's, that's sort of, I just never let myself go all the way to the dark side, you know? Like, <laughs> um, I think that's all it was, you know? And, um, and kept hope, hope alive that like somehow I could, there would be a different era in New York and I could, you know, transition into that. Which is what happened. You yeah, know? and you yeah. really made it through. Um, but yeah, that was a pretty dark time <laughs> yeah, they, for New York dance really music. Dark, um, really dark. Times. I think that was like probably you know in the thick of the cabaret law yes. um, yeah. situation in New yeah. York. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You made it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the other side. Um, yeah. I also wanted to talk to you about um, well your we've discussed how versatile of a DJ you are. Um, and right now I think there's um, a common narrative in the media right now about the New York dance music scene being, you know, intrinsically multi-genre and encompassing, you know, this very anything goes approach to mixing. And um, I feel like your DJ sets are kind of um, a testament to the fact that this is actually not a novel development. This has been happening for a long yeah, time. I completely agree with you. Yeah, um, so I, I'm wondering um, if you feel like this particular style of mixing is something that's particular to New York, or have you seen it spreading farther out? Um, I mean, I would say career? Chicago too, mm. you know, from, you know, all the way back to the 80s. Um, um, no, I think, you know, one of the things that like, when I was really young, um, I was like never necessarily like um, completely attached to like one genre of music. Um, you know, I went through my little phases or whatever, but what I realized when I started going clubbing and you could hear like the talking heads mixed, you know, in with like a house track and I was like, oh my God, you know, like there's there's no rules. Like with the New York club scene, it's like if it was somehow danceable, it, it got played, you know? And um, I don't remember anybody ever even talking about this as like some kind of crazy thing, like, oh man, we play so many different things. It was just like, that's what we did, you know? Um, and, and I think that, uh, 
as the years have gone on, maybe, um, you know, like different generations come and go and maybe they pick up on that and keep it going and maybe some don't. Um, I think when, when house and techno kind of, you know, got picked up by Europe and stuff, maybe some of that stuff got lost. You know, I think a lot of the early Detroit DJs were playing all kinds of shit. You know what I mean? And it didn't, it was like, before they even called it techno, it was just like playing whatever, whatever worked and like B-52s and Parliament and whatever, all in the same set. Um, but I think that kind of got lost a little bit in Europe and then Europe kind of dominated the narrative for so long mm -hmm. that that got kind of erased as a thing. So then all of a sudden people started paying attention to New York and Detroit again and they're like, whoa, they play so many different kinds of things. But we've just been doing that, you know, this whole time. Another thing I noticed in your sets is that apart from it being stylistically diverse, you also combine a lot of classic records with newer artists. Um, this is very evident on your RA mix, which you did. It came out last month. Um, that has a lot of people you admire, Fred P, Reggie Dokes. It also has a lot of relatively newer artists, like Bella Boo out of Sweden. I know a lot of DJs sometimes maybe feel self-conscious when they're playing too many classics in a set. Is that something um, you feel? I'm just wondering whether you try to keep this balance between old and new records. Is that something intentional, or are you just vibing it out in the moment? Um, I haven't like really found myself in a position yet, I hope it never happens, where I'm like, man, new music now? Mm. You know, <laughs> I know too many people that have my age and older that have, you know, going down that path. Um, I don't know, I, I just, I don't even think about it. I'm just, I'm always listening to new music and uh, obsessively buying new music. And, and then I also love so much, you know, I'm just obsessed with music, I've always been. So, you know, um, as, as, as long as it, like, does there's some thread that like, I guess it begins somewhere in like the early 70s, you know, where di when disco kind of started to take shape. As long as there's some kind of common thread from there till now, I'll just play it all. Um, I, yeah, I, d I do feel a little bit like I wouldn't want to be put in a box like, oh, he plays disco all the time. Mm -hmm. And I feel like sometimes that has happened with me. I'm not, white, I'm not really sure why. Because I, I know that party's called Tiki Disco, but <laughs> other than that, like I don't barely ever even play disco sets. I mean, here and there, but um, but yeah, I I'm just I just like to play everything, and I feel like if you can, I I haven't noticed anybody like younger like playing for younger crowds. Sometimes the biggest record of the night might be like a chic record, so I'm not feeling the vibe of like oh he's playing his old shit, you know like. So as long as people are, I, I, that's what I love so much about dance music. It kind of like, I don't feel like people who love dance music consider any of it disposable. You know, um, when I was younger and I was more of a hip hop DJ, I used to, one of the things I remember really well, <laughs> I was obsessed with um, Eric B and Rakim when I was young. And when I was DJing parties in college, I started to see like people would walk in and see it was me DJing and be like, because I used to like kind of hammer, like play a lot of, it wasn't even that old, but it was like at that point people kind of thought it was played out. Like the music was moving so fast back then. And I feel like in dance music, there isn't really that point of view. It's kind of like people want to hear an old Kerry Chandler song or, you know, 
um, masters at work or whatever, you know, and, and that's what I love. So I feel like you, it's pretty easy to, um, to mix it all up and, and keep your crowd invested, you know? It's very evident that you are full-on music nerd and you truly <laughs> love what you do. Um, you've been doing this for so long, and so I wanted to ask you how, if you ever get bored of the way you play and how you approach mixing and blending, has that changed since you first started doing this in oh the my 90s? God. Totally, yes. I'm always like changing it up, you know. I remember like a couple of years ago, I was like DJing and I had like four things going on the CD players, and I was like, this is absurd. Which is I something gotta... <laughs> that your sets usually have. There's so many melodies, there's so many beats, acapellas, everything sounds like it's happening at once. Yeah, it, I, I, can, I have had moments where I've been that. Right now, I'm, I'm on some like play a song, play another song. <laughs> I don't know, that's just where I'm at right now. Um, I mean, not like totally just clean, like I'll overlap, but I was going a little crazy with the like acapellas over two different beats and sound effects and I don't know, I was kind of like, <laughs> like it's fun to do it, but I don't know, I, it just, yeah, I just go through phases where I'm like, I want to play like this right now, I want to play like that. I wish that I was more, like I feel like there's some DJs that are just like from the day they started, they play the same way and I really respect that because it's consistent and you don't run the risk of like looking back on one part of your career and being embarrassed by it, which I for sure do. <laughs> but I'm like always getting bored, so I wanna like change it up, you know? All right. Um, so I wanna switch gears a bit. Um, I'd like to talk about your childhood, um, which sounds like it was fascinating. So you grew up in the Bronx in the 80s. Um, a wonder, no? I, I just, just for the early, for a few years. Okay. And then okay, I moved. Okay. To and then Manhattan, you moved. And you to moved. Manhattan. Yeah. Okay. So, um, you grew up in a building, though, that so that was uptown, mm -hmm. not in the Bronx. No, no. I lived in the Bronx for <laughs> just for a few years with my I mom see, and dad, see, and then I when see. they got divorced, I moved to Manhattan with my mom. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So yes, you grew up in a building uptown mm -hmm. that was home to a few local legends, mm -hmm. um, and it sounded. Really cool. Um, so you had Bobito Garcia mm -hmm. in that building, yeah. Curious George, uh -huh. um, yeah. and across the street from this building was a park where um, the famous hip hop crew Rocksteady would often practice. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah. It's also an amazing time for music. You know, you have all these emergent scenes like um, punk, hip hop, um, and house coexisting. Can you talk about what it was like growing up in that neighborhood? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, it was uh, a very unique neighborhood. Um, it's different now, but it's not astronomically different. Mm -hmm. It's not like Williamsburg now compared to Williamsburg in the 80s. It's, it's basically like every avenue is almost like a different kind of neighborhood. So it's like you have like Riverside Drive, which is like beautiful old houses, more like wealthy people. And like West End sort of the same thing. And then Broadway is like all businesses. And then Amsterdam and Columbus is kind of more like the hood. It's like where I was, it was like projects in the park and like more like, you know, um, it was like a lot of Haitians, Dominicans, Puerto Ricans, Koreans. Um, and then another avenue up, it was Central Park West, which was like another, you know, uh, area which is like beautiful buildings, uh, more well-to-do folks up there. But a lot of us all went to the same public school. So you, you got to like, you know, meet all different kinds of people. Um, the the time that I started to sort of like become aware of my surroundings was like 
I know it sounds so old saying this, but it was kind of like the Run DMC. Run DMC, for those people who are like my age, Run DMC is like the line in the sand. Like there was stuff before Run DMC, we sort of know it. It's, you know, but Run DMC was like, okay, we're paying attention. And that was kind of when I started really noticing like um, people in my neighborhood who were like, I was really into graffiti. Like w back in these days, I was actually more into like the fashion and graffiti and dancing than even the music. That's kind of like something I feel like a lot of people don't really know. Like rapping was almost like the least important thing. Like we were really into, was really into graffiti and um, trying to dress dope and you know. <laughs> and I was like nine, you know. <laughs> I mean, I but, feel like that's the New York experience. Yeah, maybe, you know, yeah. You know. And it was exciting because it was like, imagine like a whole genre of music that's about to change everything just starting to exist. Like that's crazy, you know? And, and it was like, you know, from the Bronx and uptown, really, originally, you know? Um, so it was cool. Um, but I was also really into like skateboarding and uh, a little bit later, like skateboarding. And that wasn't like so normal back then around my neighborhood. So I got teased a lot, like bullied. <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, and yeah, I just remember like people break dancing a lot and loud music playing in the park, that kind of thing. It was really, it was really cool. Do you think being exposed to so many different kinds of sounds and even people in those formative years, um, do you think that's helped you kind of bring about such a wide-ranging style when you're DJing, like just being naturally exposed to such a you know vibrant environment? Like yeah, that, I feel like that's reflective somehow in your sets right now. It could be. Um, the other big element was MTV, so I guess somehow we had cable. <laughs> I remember my mom being like, man, they raised the cable bill to $12 a month now. Like, I don't know if we can keep it, but I guess we had it. And I don't really remember, the, I think the point of cable back then was just to get good reception. Because like, <laughs> you guys are looking at me like I'm an alien. <laughs> like if you just bought a TV and plugged it in, the shit would look like trash. You, like you have to mess with the, the antenna, wire. Right? Yeah. So like cable was a way to get good reception. But then all of a sudden they started putting channels on it like extra, like HBO or whatever. And MTV came out and I was like, like immediately addicted. And the early stuff that they were playing was like Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Boy George and Duran Duran and Depeche Mode and all that stuff. I was like, this is it. Like this is, I was in love with that shit. So, you know, and a lot of that was electronic and, and, and derivative of disco. <clears throat> and, and when you listen to like, um, Chicago mixes um, from the mid 80s, they're playing all of it. So it was kind of like, kind of in a way, like an introduction to me so early on to, to dance music. And then on the other side of that, we had like, on the radio, we had like freestyle playing, like the early, early stuff, like Shannon and Freeze. So I really liked all of that stuff. I remember just thinking like the drum machine, I was like, this is the best. I don't ever want to hear a real drummer again in my life. <laughs> So it was a combination, I think, of, of that, you know, stuff. Yeah, so you spoke about the radio. Um, I'm curious to know, um, were there any particular records that your parents played for you? Because I know there were artists um, that um, were pivotal to your um, transition into um, yeah, um, your love for dance not music. Not like, kind of. <laughs> my mom, no, for sure. First of all, my dad... Um, was playing like a lot of Spanish music and I don't remember having any interest in that. 
<laughs> and then my mom, no, but he also liked the Beatles, and I was like, the Beatles are dope. And then my mom had her record collection, and I would just like always look at it, and and you know she let me put on records, and she had um, like those Stevie Wonder records from like Music on My Mind up to Songs in the Key of Life, the whole little run that he did where he was just like the best in the world, <clears throat> and those like ended up in my room, you know, I kidnapped those. And she had like, um, also like, sort of like the cheesy 70s jazz that was happening, like Bob James and Sergio Mendez and uh, Grover Washington Jr. Not th it's not cheesy. cheesy. I didn't mean, I didn't, I sorry, say, sorry. Hey. <laughs> like the fusion stuff. It was like a little cheesy, but like, <laughs> but dope, right? And um, so she had all that stuff, Ralph McDonald. I liked all of that. And then she had the Beatles and Billie Holiday. <clears throat> Billie Holiday was like her main thing always playing Billie Holiday, and um, yeah, I, I, I think it, you know, it, it seeped in, but I was on my own, like, shit, because she, she was really young when she had me, but I felt like she was so old. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like, she would be like, what is that, you know, like, she's talking about rap music, like, I, what, is, what, is, what is that? It's not music, and I'd just be like, get out of here. You know, like, you just, you don't get it. And she was only, like, 26 or something, like, really young, mm -hmm. but, just like already apparent, already kind of like removed from, you know, what I thought was like the exciting music. Um, so I kind of feel like I kind of, I took, you know, some of that stuff she was playing around. It was all great music she was playing and a lot of classical music. I forgot to add that, like a lot of classical music. Um, so it was all good music, like, and it was always on. I think that's the one thing that I really picked up from my mom was like music was, there was never a time when music wasn't playing. And I'm kind of like that now. Like I don't, if I'm like in the house and it's quiet, I'm like, what happened? You know, I have to. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back to your parents. Yeah. Um, I know you said your dad used to play a lot of Spanish music, yeah. which you went into as a kid. <laughs> your father is from Puerto Rico originally. Yeah. Your mother, I believe, has some Greek mm -hmm. heritage. Yeah, but she's from New York City. She's a native New Yorker too. Do you find that your background now informs your musical selections in any way? Um, I think. Mostly it's their spirit, you know, um, just being like, to them, like both of them, like, you know, they, I feel like to them, the only thing that was really important was like art, you know, um, music and, and my mom was really um, a huge um, reader, so literature, and my dad too, he was, he was a huge reader. He wrote books, I mean, I, I forget sometimes all the shit he did. Um, he, he, my dad was um, locked up for most of my childhood so a lot of the stuff that he gave me was like through like the mail. So he would publish books when he was um, locked up and like send them to me and he was painting all the time and then sending, he couldn't keep his paintings. So he would send me his paintings. So I had all his paintings all over, you know. And um, yeah, I think it was more just their spirit and their, and their complete, like I never got shit from them about like, you know, you have to get a real job or you have to be this or that. It was always, complete faith and trust and uh, support, you know, from them as far as me just like wanting to do music. So I think that's more so than like any direct musical influence, it would be just them as people, you know. Right, yeah. um, and you also, um, I believe your mother um, put you in violin and piano lessons during your childhood, um, so. Yeah, it seems like it was a very creative household. Um, do you ever um, stay with those instruments or? Um, yeah, do yeah. You, yeah. Uh -huh, yeah. I mean, like, 
I play everything like fairly well. Like I can play guitar fairly well. I can play piano fairly well. Um, xylophone too. Like you know, I never got like a, I was never like a virtuoso because I couldn't like keep my attention enough. Like my attention span was too short, and I would get bored at like practicing and stuff. So I feel like once I got good enough to get whatever sound I wanted to get out of something, I was happy. And yeah, so like I do feel like that stuff. I I think it's really awesome when people who have absolutely no musical training create incredible music that's completely uninformed by any sort of traditional uh, learning experience with music. At the same time, I also like the fact that I know if I hear like a major seventh chord in my head, I could just play it. You know, because sometimes I, I like to sample a lot, but sometimes you just can't find a sample that has the, the melody you hear or like the thing you want. So I like having that. Um, you know, just knowing that I can do it if I want to. So I'm glad that she did that, you know. Is that something you experiment with a lot? Um, so I know that you work with samples often, but do you like incorporate some of, um, li some live instrumentation into your production? Um, just me, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that's it, I, I'm pretty into, um, I, I, I really love, all of the technological advancements that have been made since, you know, the early 2000s or whatever. Um, I love being able, I, I, I never really liked going to recording studios. Um, I always felt like I would bring in a beat and it, it would, the, the engineer would mix it and then we would leave and it didn't sound the way it sounded when I brought it in and I was too shy to tell him or her. I'd be like, it sounds great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel like I knew how I wanted it to be in my head, you know, and um, now like, I'll just like sit on my couch and my laptop and like not even like plug in a synth, just like play some shit on the, on the keyboard and, um, and, and feel like I'm getting it to sound better than it would if I was like in a fancy studio with like, you know, a real trained musician. It's just for my music. I'm not saying that everyone should feel like this, but <laughs> for what I wanna do, I feel like it, it really works, you know? Um, I feel like it less, of, less is more kind of thing really works for me, so yeah. Right. Um, so I wanted to talk a bit about your early start in music. Um, so we mentioned that you went to school at SUNY Purchase. Um, you graduated around 1997. Um, you also started DJing professionally around that time. Can you describe what your involvement in the scene was like then? In, in New York or at school? Um, in New York, or you can oh. <laughs> tell me whatever you want. Well, we actually did have a scene in school. It was it was awesome, um, and that's where I kind of cut my teeth. Like, um, it was four years from the day I started, like the first time I ever like mixed two records together. It was four years from that day to the first time I ever played in a real club, um, uh, which I thought was what everybody did. But now I realize people just like are like, I'm going to start, and they just go to clubs and start DJing. <laughs> but at the time. I um, I got to school. I got like my first pair of turntables like the summer of '93, and then I went to school that fall. And um, I got to school, and like the first weekend, some older kids I knew from LaGuardia, from my high school, who were up there, were like, you know, we're doing a party tonight. And they took me, and it was like, you know, the DJ booth was the kitchen, like they had the turntables <laughs> up on the sink, and the wall, like you couldn't even see the dance floor. It was it was amazing. It was like, <laughs> and they had so many records. I mean, I had like a decent record collection, but they had way more. And 
I couldn't believe it. I was just like, I didn't know any DJs. Like that's, that's one of the crazy things I think about now. Like I literally didn't know one DJ. Now there's a million DJs everywhere. When I started DJing, I did not know one DJ. I knew of a few, but probably only like five, you know? And, and, I, and all of a sudden I was at school and some, some people I knew from high school, they could DJ and they were doing it on the weekends and the parties were crazy. Oh my God, like, like we, we would have them in these really, my college like was really cheap. It was like built in the 60s when it like, you know, um, so the, the, the houses would like, when people were dancing, they would like rock back and forth and the floor would like <laughs> go like this. But it was incredible. And, um, and the energy was just nuts, you know? I remember like the first week of, um, school was like right when um, the B-side of Wu-Tang's song Protect Your Neck, um, Method Man started to become a hit. It had been out for like almost a year before it became a hit. I don't know why I'm talking about this. But uh, <laughs> I just remember like all of a sudden it was like, oh, the B-side is starting to pick up steam. And I remember my friend uh, Kiambu played it at, at the house party that night and I just watched everybody just jump up and down. And I was like, yep, this is what I want to do, you know? And uh, so I started to practice all the time and then I started to get to play those parties too. They like kind of let, let me, you could open up tonight. Like they, let, they brought me in like little by little. And, um, and it was really fun. And, um, and then by the time I graduated, um, I feel like just right away I started playing all the time. I think part of the reason why is because I had been clubbing for so long anyway, like since I was in high school. Like when I was in high school, you could go clubbing. I don't know why it's not like that now. I think because they check IDs, <laughs> but they didn't in the 90s. <laughs> and um, I knew a lot of people. So, and then also when I was in school, it was super easy to get back to the city. It was just like a Metro North, like 40 minutes. So I would go back to the city to go clubbing. So I knew a lot of promoters already and um, people in the scene. So it was pretty easy to just start DJing um, somehow. It was just kind of easy. And um, I was just playing like wherever I could. It was all downtown. Everything was... East Village, a um, little bit on the west side, and that's about it. You know, there wasn't much else. I mean, a little bit of stuff like on the, in the 20s, like bigger clubs. I played Tunnel one time, you know, like mm. um, Limelight, stuff like that. Um, but mostly just smaller places, just trying to like, make, you know, make a living. Um, so yeah, that's what it was like. And I'm was, actually um, really glad you brought up that, that Wu-Tang record because <laughs> Was it around, you've always been a massive hip-hop fan. You mentioned that as a kid. Um, you, I know it was Bobito who also gave you a job at his record store for work. Um, and it was at the store you got to meet a ton of legends. Uh, you met MF Doom. At this point in your life, did you think that you would become a hip-hop DJ? It, because I know you mentioned playing Eric B and Rakim before. I mean, I was at that time. You know, but, but the thing is, is that at that time, um, being a hip-hop DJ kind of meant you had to play everything. Like, I feel like I already maybe said that so far. It was like, you couldn't just be, like, I had to learn how to play certain types of music. You know, at, at, at first when I started, I didn't want to play dance hall because um, I just didn't feel like I was going to be good at it. I feel like I didn't understand it or, like, know enough about, about the music to even maybe have the right to play it. And then um, a friend of mine who was super into dance hall just started taking me shopping once a week, putting me up on Mad Records and, like, and I felt like I could give it a try. So, but, and I kind of had to, because you were required at, in those years to be able to play, you had to play dance hall. Like, you just had to. Mm -hmm. So I, I kind of like, 
if you were uh, you know playing in the kind of clubs I was playing in. So, um, at, at what being a hip hop DJ meant to me was kind of like being a DJ that can play everything, you know, like, like, um, you know, maybe not drum and bass, but we don't. Nobody even like knew about drum and bass, <laughs> but like, you know, at least four or five different genres of music I had to have a good amount of, um, you know. So and and you know like, uh, as uh, I think like to answer your question, pretty soon I knew I wanted to to try to go in a different direction. Because, actually, I remember, with my, I can tell a story, if I'm not boring everybody. Please tell us the stories. <laughs> um, I, I played at this place called Vinyl one night. I opened for Tony Touch. And um, Vinyl was on Hudson Street, and they used to do um, Shelter there, um, and Body and Soul. I'm pretty sure. I wanna, I'm pretty sure that they did. I know that, that the night that I opened for Tony Touch, Timmy Regisford was playing in the bigger room. So I opened for Tony Touch, and then when I was done, I walked into the bigger room just to see what it was like, and it was just like amazing, you know? And um, I can remember the record that was playing was I Got the Feeling by Two Tons of Fun, and I, just the way people were reacting, were reacting to it was so much more positive, and like I could feel like the sense of community in that room, um, and it just felt really special, and um, I think it just made me feel like I would rather be part of something like that, maybe, than anything else. Um, people just seemed happier. <laughs> and it was something like more cathartic going on. And um, I remember, I know, I'll never forget that night, you know? Um, so that, that, that was sort of like, maybe like 98. And I think, I, I think at that moment I was like, I wanna try to, like my dream would be to, to be a you know, dance music DJ predominantly dance music DJ, yeah. Yeah, um, and it seems like, again, at the time, like, reading the crowd is just so important. So like, you know, you're playing different genres maybe every few hours. Mm -hmm. um, so going into your production, um, listening to your music, I think it's very clear how much you love New York. Um, and you have one album in particular, Up All Night, um, that to me sounds like an ode to an older version of New York. Um, there are some um, disco and funk samples, track titles like Thank You LES and NY So High that um, make me reminiscent of a New York that I've mostly heard of from my parents or like, you know, Spike Lee films or even like documentaries. Um, and I'm wondering if, you know, this very classic um, New York sound is something that you find important to preserve. Um, that album, you know, the thing, like the best way I could answer it, that question would sort of be like to tell you how that album happened, which is mm -hmm. um, during the kind of like maybe three or four years before that, I was just kind of like releasing a lot of EPs for labels, like um, dance music labels. And I was always, I think I was misguided. I think I was really trying to make a club banger. <laughs> like, I, I was just like, th that's how I was thinking about my music. I was like, how is this gonna work in a club? Mm -hmm. Which isn't a crazy thing to think of if you're making dance music. But uh, I, was, I was like, you know, thinking kind of like, kind of like the structure, like it has to start with the kick drum so the DJs can mix it in. And then it has to 
be the buildup, and then there's gonna be a drop, and then everything's gonna come back in. And <laughs> you know, I was just trying to like, I wanted to have a record that everybody would play at a club, and that wasn't really happening. <laughs> so all I was left with was a bunch of EPs that I didn't really care about. <laughs> but in my spare, but then the other thing was I was always making other stuff, and um, I think it was more like informed almost by, by, by rap music in a way, like, like early, like, I feel like a lot of that album is inspired by the, f the first Tribe Called Quest album, which might not make sense, but I love the first Tribe Called Quest album so much, and when I think about that album, it kind of sounds like, well, it's called, it has the word journey in the title, but it kind of feels like they're like on a journey, and it's like, um, it's just sound effects in it and, and stuff, and I was making stuff on the side, just kind of like, you know, at like five in the morning when I was done working on some crap that I didn't even really, that didn't, wasn't even good, I would make some other shit just to like do, and then I would send it to my friend um, James. And after a little while, he was like, um, these tracks are all a lot better than the stuff you're putting out. <laughs> we should just release it ourselves and let's just see what happens. And um, to his credit, he was, he was totally right. You know, um, the music that I was making without really like, trying to do something that, that was just kind of coming from my heart was way better. And, you know, you probably can't mix in a lot of it very easily. There's not like a nice, but who cares, right? Because it, it's music and it should, be, it should be more than just a functional, you know, tool for a, for a, a DJ. So, um, so that's how that happened. And I think just the inspiration from, from I'm, so in, I'm so influenced by um, late 80s and early 90s hip-hop, which is mostly from New York, I think that informs my sound even now. You know, I, I don't know, I'm just like, this sounds good, but I think it just needs like a police siren in the background, or like <laughs> kids at a playground, like something to give it ambiance, and then I'm like, perfect, you know? <laughs> no, that makes a lot of sense. It's just hearing about, you know, your early start in music, I can really make the connection now with your style of DJing and even the records you're putting out. I wanted to ask you, you've been, you know, your first record came out, what, in like 1999? Yeah. How have you changed your style of and producing? And there's somebody who was on, in, on that record in the room. Ooh. <laughs> My friend Jason, he was on that record. Sorry. Hi, Jason. <laughs> How would you say, um, yeah, your approach and maybe style of producing has changed since 99, or has it at all? I mean, it has because it's more dance music now, but not really. Actually, I always forget. I just put out three beat tapes. That's right. Yeah. I always forget about like the last things I did. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't think it's changed that much. I don't know. Um, well, I mean, I'm I'm much like the way I I I, um, I buy new music and DJ new music. I think I'm trying to make sure it sounds current, whatever that means. Um, so I'm like I'm definitely like aware of you know what's going on around me in 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 production. And, and you know, not necessarily copying, but like I think it's important to be aware of like what's going on with other producers and um, uh, and you know the sounds that are happening. And so um, I don't know, but I think that I'm I'm the only thing that I would say is uh, a common thread amongst any of my records is that maybe they're all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like, I, I don't know, like, the new re record I just finished doesn't sound anything like any of my other albums, so that, that sort of 
makes sense to me because mm. uh, I get bored with like one sound, you know, mm -hmm. I guess. And you've also spoken about, um, I guess, like only recently becoming comfortable um, as a producer, um, which I think is mm -hmm. like pretty inspirational for yeah. many young artists that um, might feel like if they don't, you know, excel at their craft or, you know, um, make it before their late 20s that they've kind of missed the boat. Um, how do you feel like you finally came into your own as a producer? It has a lot to do with that story I told you about um, my friend kind of pointing something out to me that somehow I didn't see myself. Um, stop, I stopped trying to make anything, like I, tr I stopped trying to think about what I was gonna make before making it and mm -hmm. trying, to, trying to be like, I'm gonna make a, this type of record. I just let that go completely. Um, I just, I spent so many years kind of like fumbling around, you know, like um, trying to, I don't know, make a certain type of record and it just doesn't work for me, you know. Um, once I just kind of like got rid of that mindset, I felt so much more comfortable and um, competent and confident in my own music. Um, I cannot listen to one thing I've done before 2015. Like really, <laughs> um, just no nothing, you know. Um, and I, I don't know, but it, there's a, there's also like so many artists who their most incredible work is like their first work, and then you know like their first couple albums or whatever. And then it, I, I I don't really know why why I feel like my story is a little bit like the opposite. Not that I'm saying my music's incredible, but you know I feel bet way better about it now. Um, um, I think it mostly has to do with, with my friend, James, mm -hmm. you know, who passed away, unfortunately. Um, but I'm like, I'm just eternally grateful to him for like seeing that in me and like helping me realize it about myself, you know? That's very special. Yeah, um, it, is, it is. I was wondering, you mentioned your love for tech earlier. Um, so I'm curious to know what your studio setup is like for your records, I assume you have way too much vinyl than actual yeah. machinery. Yeah, get ready to be really disappointed, everyone. It's literally a laptop and a couch. <laughs> I used to have a studio. Um, I have just too many, there's just records everywhere. That's it's, what it's I It's really, it's ridiculous. And then I have like a storage, Manhattan mini storage room that's got like thousands of them in there. Still got some in my bedroom at my mom's house. Um, <laughs> Do you have a number but, on how much vinyl you currently own? No, it's too much. I have no idea. And it's just too spread out. I've sold a lot of it, though, too. Um, thousands and thousands of records I've sold. Um, I'm not, like, crazy about having a big record collection. I actually don't really like it. It's kind of a burden. It feels, like, overwhelming, you know? Um, but what can you do? <laughs> and I'm not stopping. That's the other thing. Because I'll, <laughs> I'll wake up and be like, oh, there's records everywhere. All right, I guess I'll go record shopping now. <laughs> like, I just can't stop, you know? <laughs> I think a lot of people can relate. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so in the interview you did for us um, for the RA podcast you did uh, last month, you mentioned that you're working on two albums, and one you described is sample-free. Um, and to me, that sounds like an endeavor that's um, probably a milestone for someone that's used to working with samples. Is working without samples something you've been aiming to do for a while? 
Um, no, not really. I, I, I love sampling. I have like okay. no issues with it. I know like <laughs> there's been producers in the past who like turned Christian and they were like, sampling is stealing. I'm never doing it. Nah, not me. I, I love it. <laughs> I just, just like was in a mood. I was like listening to a lot of Brian Eno and like actually one album in particular, um, Music for Films. And I was just really inspired by that and I felt like I could do it. So I was, uh, I made it in like five days. I was just kind of interested in trying to see if I could make something that was sort of, had some ambient influences, but also, you know, some dance music in it too. Um, and something that you could listen to from like the beginning to end and like kind of actually told a story even though there's no words on it. Um, and I really wanted to be 100% involved with every melody that was on it. Mm. And I felt, in the moment, I had a burst of inspiration where I felt like I could take that on. Um, it just, sampling just didn't fit into the, to the scheme there, you know? So, so I did that, and, um, and I'm really, really happy with it. I'm super excited about it. When's yeah. the album drop? I don't know, we don't, I don't have a date yet. I'm, I'm aiming for like September though. Okay, Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, I want to um, kind of lean towards the end of our chat, but I wanted to get your thoughts on New York nightlife, just mm -hmm. overall. Yeah. Um, you mentioned um, clubs like Limelight back in the day, um, back when Manhattan was very much still the epicenter of nightlife. I know a lot of clubs in that time, the DJ booth was usually hidden, um, and the focus was always on people in the crowd, not necessarily the person behind the decks. That was very much in line with um, the loft parties where, where David Mancuso wanted people to interact with each other. Now, however, um, you have people obsessively watching the DJ as if they're the spectacle of yeah. the night. You grew up watching DJs to learn the craft. How do you now feel about people watching you while you play? I mean, I watched DJs in like a way that was like really sneaky. You know, <laughs> I remember the first time I saw Dave Mancuso DJ and I, I thought I was like, you know, seeing Jesus, you know, I, I, I there's no way I wasn't going to watch, you know, and he was like, had a, like flashlight and he was kind of hard to not look at, you know, and, and you could see all his records. So I was like, you know, pretty in, in, in excited about that. Um, but yeah, that's more like, you know, on the side, like nerdy guy who wants to like, see what DJs are doing, that kind of thing. It's not like standing in front of them the whole night. Um, I, I don't know, man. I, I, I feel like there's nothing you can really do to like, every, everything goes through changes. And I don't know why the facing the DJ thing has happened, but I don't really know what, what, what's to be done about it. It's not my favorite thing in the world. I don't feel like I get that much of that at my parties, which I'm pretty grateful for, but it happens, mm -hmm. especially on the road. Um, I, you know, I'm sure you can tell from this interview, I'm terribly awkward, and I, I don't... That's not at all I, true. The last no. thing I want is anyone, and is, is like a whole club of people facing the DJ booth. Um, <laughs> but I also just feel like, if people are having fun, I'm not gonna criticize how they have fun. You know, I don't wanna be one of those disgruntled, old school people who like, complains about everything not being the way it was when they were younger. Um, I, I did a lot of nights in my earlier days where I was in a booth that was high up in a corner. It was cool, but it was also kind of lonely. Mm. You know, like you had to like, I had to, first of all, I had to like 
somehow get five crates of records up a ladder. <laughs> I was mad strong back then. <laughs> I had to somehow get, I don't know how I did it, but I used to have, I would always play with five crates of records. And I had to get them up to some little ass thing in the corner of a club. And you know, it was cool because nobody was watching me. And I also, the bird's eye view thing can be kind of awesome. Um, there's a club in Belfast I really like to play that still has that set up because it's an old club and they never changed anything about it. Whenever I play there, I'm always like, this is amazing. Like I love looking down and seeing everyone and they're all just dancing with each other or dancing by themselves, but like completely in their own universe. So I do like that. Um, but those little you know, bird's eye view things weren't that great because it could be lonely and I like you know, a DJ booth like Good Room where it's big and, and if you have friends, they can hang out with you and that's great, you know? Um, so, I don't really know. Like, like things just go in, in, in cycles and I think, like I said, as long as people are having fun, that's the most important thing. I don't know. I don't feel like you can force people to do something because you don't think it's like the ideal situation. You know, you can't be like, I remember the first time I did a boiler room, I contemplated wearing like a t-shirt that said like, don't look at me or something. And I was just like, <laughs> this is ridiculous. Like I shouldn't do boiler room if I don't want people to look at me, you know? <laughs> um, it's just, it is what it is, you know? <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Yeah. Um, one last question for you before yeah. we open it up. Okay. Now that so many great parties are happening in Brooklyn, do you think Manhattan is poised for the comeback? I, I don't think so. I love Manhattan. I mean, I'm from Manhattan, so I'm not going to like badmouth it. And I, I, first of all, I do two parties in Manhattan that are incredible, right? right? So it's possible. But, you know, I just feel like there's something that happened in Manhattan that just, it's like they can't, the bottle service thing just like ruined Manhattan. Even like when a place that tries to open now and, you know, like, um, it just seems like that, that kind of side of things still rears its head a little bit. And um, I don't know. I don't, I don't think there's just, there's no places like this, you know, where you're not like in the middle of some crazy residential area or like this open space. It's just so crowded. And I think you can always have a fun night in Manhattan, no doubt about it. Like if somebody's um, throwing a party that like, our party on Wednesday, it doesn't matter. I don't think anyone who comes to our party lives in Manhattan, you know? I, I would, I mean, maybe like me, but, <laughs> I, you know, people are willing to go. And Battle Him is, 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 is one of the best parties ever, and it's, it's in Chelsea, but there's nothing else in Chelsea, and it's only because Lady, like, puts in that work to get people to go there, so. But I don't see it having a comeback to the point where there's a scene again. I mean, something has to change with like real estate and, you know, the type of people who live there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, well, things yeah. are always moving around. Yeah. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. I know. It's in Manhattan, Williamsburg. Now it's in like Bushwick, Queens. Yeah. I mean, so. it's possible. I don't want to write it off. I, I don't know. I don't know. It's possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's all the questions we have for you, Ellie. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so cool. much. Yeah. We learned Thank a lot. You. Um, Thank you guys for coming. Thank, Thank you, Ellie. Thank you. Really. Thank you.